What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm feeling good today. I hope you are. I'm feeling good because I got my boot off. I was in this ortho boot for the last several weeks. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been dabbling with taking it off, but it's gone now. It's gone now. I just got a brace. What happened, you might ask? Well, I was at this festival and I had literally five minutes from sound check to a photo shoot thing that I had to do for the festival. I had five minutes to eat. So I was sprinting. I mean, I was running full speed. Tripped over a cable run, yanked my ankle. Sucker was bruised to oblivion, swollen up for a few weeks, but I'm feeling good now. I'm feeling great. I'm back in action. I'm mobile. I feel good. My strength is back. Feels good. Not hitting the skateboard again yet, though. That's tough. I was in Des Moines this weekend. They got this super dope skate park. I wasn't able to hit it, though. Anyways, I was on tour. Europe. It was so good. Honestly, it was my biggest tour yet. All sold out. I could not believe it. It was so much fun. We had a blast. Band has been sounding as good as ever. I can't believe it. And I'm excited because we're doing a U.S. tour coming up, too. So if you are on the West Coast or just the West part of the country, Texas, all that, too, come hang at a show. Come say hi. I got a little VIP thing we're doing, too. Gonna hit an acoustic set for it because I got to get my acoustic on, right? Got to get the acoustic on. So I'm going to do a little acoustic set for a VIP thing. And then we do the full show also with Lalome. Are you cats hip to Lalome yet? This band is cool. Check them out. L-A-L-O-M. And Monica Martin is coming out as a special guest to be singing with me on that tour. Very excited. You know what else I'm excited about? Bruno Major's on the show today. Bruno is a dope singer, songwriter, and guitar player. Really, really cool stuff. I have been hip to Bruno for a lot of years just from internet stuff. And then eventually really started to get into his records and his writing and all that sort of thing. So I'm really excited to have Bruno on the show. If you're not familiar, go get hip. But we dive into it, so let's hit it. Here we go, Bruno Major. Hey, you guys know about DistroKid yet? If you are an artist, musician, somebody who's trying to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, all of those things, DistroKid is a digital distributor that can get your music on all of those platforms. It's the easiest, fastest way to do so, with accounts even just starting at $19.99 a year per artist. So for me, I have several albums out. I just pay one amount for the year. For all the Corey Wong albums, I just pay one amount, and DistroKid takes 0% royalty. 100% of the royalties come straight to me. Or you use their Teams feature where you can dedicate a certain percentage to one member of your band, a certain percentage to the other, or one of your collaborators. I do this sort of thing, it works amazing. DistroKid is who I use for my albums and it has worked great for me. The stuff gets up there fast. They have a smart ISRC thing. I don't have to worry about coming up with my own codes, registering a lot of the stuff. They just have that. And they also have these really cool design tools. If you are not very design savvy, they'll help you come up with assets for social media and other things to help promote your album. And if you want to use them, you can use my VIP code. Just go distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong and you get 30% off. How about that? Check them out, DistroKid. All right, let's hit this episode. Bruno, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Stoked to have you today. Oh, dude, thank you for having me. Um, it's always a, a surprise and an honor when people are interested in hearing me talk. I always think the same thing too, but then, you know, 
Take a look back for a second and realize that you are very dope at what you do and you have been objectively Snap, you're objectively successful. It's okay to to have people interested in you. Sometimes we just have to I know sometimes for us in this modern generation it's kind of hard to deal with that, but you're dope. That's why Thanks. you're here, dude. Thanks, Corey. I um appreciate that. You know what? I um I secretly loved I secretly loved talking. I I think um <laughs> in another lifetime i would have been like a journalist um so yeah i i, I have i have a lot of opinions probably too many i hope we get into them today i love a good juicy opinion <laughs> especially from somebody who's in the middle of a tour that's really what i i know you're out on the road right now i know that's where i get my my hottest opinions is when i'm yeah. out on the road i'm a little bit tired feels like Another day of sound check, one yeah. more squeal through the monitors, and that just that put me over the edge. Now all of a sudden oh. you're gonna hear everything I think about this one director's approach to cinema. I was in oh. a, I was in a cab yesterday in Austin and the guy the guy I was driving me was like he said he told me he was a flower child, like in the early sixties. He was like, That's before hippieism. Um and he was like, I realized that the key to having the key to longevity and, and having a happy life was to just go with the flow and not have any opinions. And I was like, well, I'm fucked. <laughs> then did you share your opinion about <laughs> opinions to him? <laughs> no, I didn't. He was just so lovely. Um, but uh, what do you, where are you in the world, Corey? I'm in Minneapolis right now. I've been all over the place. I'm about to go to Europe. When this comes out, I will be in Europe. And, oh, nice. you know, out there on the road doing the thing. Yeah, I am as you're going, is that as Corey Wong? Yes. Awesome, man. Yes, Corey Wong tour. And then in November, I have a residency with Wolfpack in New York. Awesome, December, man. December, Fearless Flyers residency in New York. Where's the All residencies? The, uh, the Wolfpack one is at a place called Avant Gardener in Brooklyn. Cool. And the Fearless Flyers ones are at the Blue Note. That's so Double cool. headers with both. Both bands are doing two shows a night, which I love. Wow, Broadway Joe style, baby. <laughs> so you and Joe and both, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A lot of sixteenth notes. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanna I wanna start with your guitar playing, and then I, I have a I have other things I want to ask you about because we're a guitar podcast. Okay, dude. Awesome. I saw. I mean, I've seen I've seen you on the internet for a lot of years, and then I did a deep dive a couple years back, and then I noticed when you were doing that thing where you're releasing like a song a month and you committed to this thing and then you just, I knew you as songwriter guy for a minute. And then I recently came back to this video of you playing at Java Jazz Fest. I think it's your tune Easily. Mm, just yeah. some of the sickest, smoothest guitar, dude. Thanks I'm watching so this stuff and then I'm like, oh my gosh, this is insane. And then I read an interview. You're like, yeah, I grew up listening to Meshuggah, Matador, Lamb of God, etc." I'm like, hold up. <laughs> Talk to me about the path of your guitar playing from being a metalhead to playing, you know, kind of Joe Pass vibe on a Les Paul. Well, I mean, this this the, the reason I play a Les Paul is, is purely my love of metal. Um, you know, I, I used to play through a Mesa Boogie dual rectifier. I've still got it, a two-channel Mesa Boogie wow. dual rectifier through a 4x12 angle cab. Um, which is about as metal as it gets, really. Um, but yeah, I, I, I played classical guitar as a kid. And mm -hmm. then about, you know, when I got to like 13, I, I started getting into like shred, shred metal. I just wanted to play really fast all the time. 
Yeah. Um, so I like, you know, I, I got into like Paul Gilbert and stuff. Oh yeah. Um, all of those guys. Um, and then it was like <clears throat> around 16 years old, I saw, uh, Martin Taylor mm. play a solo jazz concert. Um, and for me, it, I'd never really understood jazz. Um, I always saw it. It's just like, and it was a bit scary and, and strange to me. Um, and yeah, he just like, he just explained it to me because I come from classical music and he explained jazz in, in the context of, of a solo guitar performance. And it, it was, it was mind blowing. And I knew in that moment I had to understand what he was doing. So I, uh, yeah, I got into it, started trawling the internet, found a, a, a Joe, a Joe Pass solo guitar jazz, um, solo jazz guitar instructional video where he explains basically a two, five, one, um, one, six, yeah. two, five, how to play basic lines over, you know, dominance and, uh, tonics and all that kind of stuff. And then I, I was obsessed. And then, um, I went and did a jazz degree, uh, did that for three years. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I basically wanted to be a, a, a jazz guitarist, but I never quite found my voice. It wasn't until I moved to London, I, I basically just started writing songs and I realized that that was really my, my calling. Sorry, this is quite a long answer, but, but then yeah. I, but then just the funny thing was that like, I then had this sort of dichotomy, um, battle in my own head between, between songwriting and the guitar, because I, I could do all of this stuff on the guitar, you know, I could shred and I could play jazz, I could play blues or whatever. And it was almost like, then I wrote this song and I knew in my heart of hearts that there was no reason or purpose to be shredding on top of these songs. And it took a, quite a long time for me to figure out how to get my guitar in all of its kind of like complexity that I'd learned and, and be able to service the song, which is the, for me, the, you know, the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, that's so funny. I've heard that same type of story and mine is similar with the studying jazz and not being able to find your voice thing. Mm. I think it's actually somewhat common in our generation from what I've talked to with other people that are both professional musicians and cats that like went to music college and then just like, I don't know, I couldn't figure it out. And they, you know, play music as a hobby now or something, or even semi-professionally. I remember thinking, I'm studying all the jazz stuff. It felt like the right thing to do because you climb this mountain and you want to find the most complex thing. And that'll be what makes me the greatest guitar player. Mm. Try to be this great guitar player. And you realize it's, there's like no way to know if you're the best guitar player. And then the only way to really find anything with meaning is like you're saying is to have your own voice. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, myself included, and, and like you're talking about, it's once you find your thing, yeah, it seems to be much more fulfilling and it's the thing that keeps you going. Totally. I think if you look at all of the great, you know, like the best is, is, is a non-argument. There's no such thing. Sure. Best. But every, if you look at every great jazz guitar player, they all have their own, their own voice. Like Kurt Rosenwinkel sound, sounds like Kurt Rosenwinkel within, within half a second of hearing him play as this yeah. was Montgomery, as does Pat Metheny, um, as does Joe Passo. It's not, if you look at something like Grant Green, you know, like Grant Green is basically, he's basically playing glorified blues licks over, over like a jazz aesthetic, but mm -hmm. he's doing very simple stuff, but it's still incredible jazz guitar because he has his own thing. He has his own voice. Yeah. And, and crucially, he has incredible time. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like actually what I, I kind of found my voice as a guitar player through the medium of songwriting in a strange way, because like, 
Mm. My guitar playing on my songs is what is what makes my guitar playing. Um, yes, and I mean, you, I mean, you. Find, I, I would say you've definitely found your voice as a guitar player. Absolutely, I didn't find mine through songwriting though. The weird thing is, I found my voice through session work. Like I, I was playing on a bunch of sessions for a while, and then I would hear just what everybody else was doing on sessions. Mm. And I would be at these sessions in Nashville or LA, New York. Like everybody's kind of doing the same stuff. Mm. Like, I don't know. Like, can we, are we allowed to be a little more creative? Are we allowed to explore this different thing? And I would start to go into different places. People like, oh my gosh, yes, that, that, what's that, what's that? And then I would just get hired again to do that, 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 that. And then mm. I realized, oh, like I have a thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then I started to develop it, but it, it was actually more on for playing on other people's songs. I mean, you're an incredible singer, so I don't have that. I, I can sing okay, but I don't have the kind of voice that people want to listen to 60 minutes of music of through the night. And I'm okay knowing that. You know, you just yeah. have to know that if, if that's the case. But I think anybody who really finds their voice, there is an avenue, whether it be their own band, yeah. whether it be, you know, like you look at somebody like Tim Henson, and Polyphia, somebody like you through songwriting, me yeah. through session work, and then being a part of a band. It's cool that there's there's a lot of ways to find it. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I actually found like recently on this last album, I've, I've started using, um, I always use my fingers as a, as a guitarist. Mm -hmm. And then I, I got into, you know, obviously got into using a pick when I got into shredding and stuff. But live, I would always be playing with my fingers the whole way through the gig. And then it would get to like a solo and I'd be like, oh, better grab my pick. And I'd like take one off of the mic stand and, yeah. and play. And I always felt like I wasn't warmed up and it would be weird. And also like I wouldn't play with as much feel as I could with my fingers. But then, mm -hmm. you know, with my fingers, I couldn't play as fast. So it was like, yeah. Um, so I, I learned Picardo. I learned how to play flamenco, yeah. um, like Pacula de Luthia style. Yeah. Um, and and that's how I played on this album, this new album, and how I've been playing on live for the tour. And it's been a bit of a game changer, man. I really feel like it's kind of like I found my voice, you know. Cool. And I noticed, yeah, you have nails. I have nails too. Classical guitar oh, kids here. These are actually uh, acrylics. Oh, those are acrylics. Yeah, I can yeah. see. I had them put on because I wore these two down from doing that. <laughs> yeah. I always wear down my index finger. I end up putting an acrylic on my index. Oh, really? I don't do love do doing it. Thing? Yeah. How do you, how, how do you, what do you ask them for? I just, I just tell them I want a nail that's the same length as this one, make it as thin as possible. And then I'll say, let me shape it, please let me shape it. Cause they normally round out the sides too much where I want the attack of my, like when my fingernail attacks, I want it to be right where the nail meets the, the flesh. So that way there's a little bit of a softer attack. Uh, oh, I see. So you're hitting with like, with like that bit there. Uh, no, others, the basically similar, it's like bass player technique, but it's just got a little bit of a, it's got a bite to it because of the right, guitar. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Kind of just what James Taylor does. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Your guitar tones on this new record, for those that are not familiar, the new album Columbo, it is so good. The writing is great, but the guitar playing, it's, I think you're right in the way that you talk about your, your guitar playing really coming to life in the way that it's in those songs. Like also in a way that maybe like Joni Mitchell's guitar playing is very unique, Ani DeFranco. There's a lot of players that their playing style just fits so well. They write songs and their guitar playing, it feels like they're 
completely married the guitar playing and the the songwriting. Thank you very much, man. Yeah, it's really cool. What's your favorite song guitar wise on the new record? Um, oh, there's obviously like the ones with the solos. Like we were never really friends. Uh, yeah, and uh, the show must go on. And then, yeah, I would say maybe those two. Um, and then there's some cool, like there's some cool, like picky stuff. Like Columbo is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, just like the I've got like a double, two guitar parts kind of like panned left and right, and they're kind of all like intricately harmonizing with each other. I love that one very much. Yeah, I've been interested in just different ways of producing guitar lately. I, my last record was a studio record. Normally, I do my albums live in the room with everybody, so I don't get to overdub a bunch. But on this one, I try to do that that thing where you like double the exact same part left and right, maybe do some harmony lines panned a little more center, yeah. maybe an octave up in the middle. Is there any cool production guitar things that you're interested in lately or stoked about doing on this last record? I do everything. Everything is like guitar, jack lead, amp. Um, and I have, I have this old uh, 1950s, Ray Massey amp, it's called. I found it in old style in Los Angeles. Uh, it was like $600 and it was the best thing I've ever bought in my life. Really? Yeah. And so he was the head head amp designer at Fender in the 50s. And he, okay. was, he was making, you know, he was like literally like designing the, the Fender Deluxe. Yeah. Um, and then he made for a very short period of time, he, ma he made his own bunch of amplifiers. They're called Massey amplifiers. And I can't find them anywhere. I've like, since I bought this fucking thing, I've been looking online and I haven't seen any. Um, but yeah, I just, I plug straight into that. And if I want a clean tone, I have it like just below half. And if yep. I want it, the, the solo, the distortion sounds on the album are all just that amp at full blast yeah. with, a, with a mic. And then all of the sounds after that I do on the box because I just don't like to commit, you know, I don't like to, I don't like to record something with loads of tremolo or reverb and then I can't take it off later. Yeah. Um, but also I feel like the more pedals you put in front of an amplifier, the more the tone starts to suck. So, um, yeah, that would be my biggest, my biggest thing. Um, what do you like to use for a mic on the amp? Uh, for electrics, uh, I generally use a SM7B just cause sure. it's the only one I've got that can handle the volume. Yeah. And, and then for acoustics, I basically use one microphone for everything. <laughs> um, which is a, a Neumann, uh, M149 tube. It's like a yeah. one of the big, yeah, the big guy, big guys, and it's just yeah. so warm. And I just, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing, man. I just, I just love the way that thing sounds on everything. So I just tend to use it. And apart from the piano, where I've got a couple of Neumanns like preset up, yeah, yeah. Did you where did you record that at a studio? Did you do that at your place? In my uh, in my bedroom, man. Um, I've I've tried. You know, I did I did the first album in my bedroom uh, with with my friend Pharaoh mm -hmm. and we used an SM7B for that entire thing. Like that whole of a song for every moon, that whole album was recorded on, on an SM7B. Wow. And then like album two, you know, it was like, Oh, you know, we can kind of afford a, a, some studio time. <laughs> so then we yeah. went into a studio and it was like, this feels weird. Let's go back to the bedroom. And then album three was kind of the same thing. Like we did a few bits in a studio, but like, you know, for me that it's like, if I turn up at like, if I go to a studio in the morning and there's like a runner and a, an engineer and a producer and like all of these people and you go in at 12 o'clock and you're like, okay, today I'm going to record the vocal for this song. And it's like, you go in and it's all whatever. Like I recorded easily at four in the morning because I felt like I needed to record easily at four in the morning. And yeah. you can hear that in the vocal. 
And I, yeah. I think there's something irreplaceable about being able to smudge over to your bedroom in your pants and, and, and record a guitar part for 20 minutes and then get on with your day because it's, that's exactly the moment that it felt right to record that guitar part. Like the difference is my music is not an Adele record. Like I don't need it to be winning a Grammy for the best engineered album. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a unique situation because I'm, I'm making relatively lo-fi music. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that would apply to, you know, Silk Sonic probably wouldn't have been able to record that album in their bedroom. Do you think that some of those artists would benefit from that though? Like, would it really, I mean, I, I, I wrestle with this. I'm like, wouldn't it be dope to hear one of these ultimate pop cats just do the bedroom album? Would it have a different thing to it? Ugh. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to say this without being extraordinarily disrespectful to like m- engineering people everywhere, but like, but like no one cares, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like if you listen to, listen to Billie Holiday, like you can hardly hear what she's saying. You hear any Chet Baker record and the hiss in the background is louder than the singing. No one cares because all that matters is the, is the emotional content of the album. Like, it, it, Elliot, like Elliot Smith, like you're going to tell me that that like him using a Tascam in his bedroom, like it's it's objectively quite bad sounding, but it's glorious, it's beautiful, yeah. and I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, and I I I I think for certain types of music specifically, mm-hmm. when you're trying to when you're trying to get an intimate feeling, when you're trying to connect directly on an emotional level with somebody, I think that there's it's far more important to to be transmitting a privacy rather than an audio quality. And mm. actually, you know what? You can get pretty good audio quality. Like it's good enough. I've got a really good interface. Um, I use a, a Apogee, like the big one. Yeah. I've got a great microphone. I've got great guitars. Um, and you know, I don't know what else, what else you need. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's just, do you trust your taste in what you're hearing and do you like it? Well, I guess first up, do you like what you hear? Do you think it sounds good? And then do you trust your taste in knowing that this sounds great? Totally, totally. I've actually been to really big studios where I've left bummed about how stuff sounds. Like, totally. dude, honestly, I could have made this sound better at home. Yeah. I have uh, two two occasions where that happened. I mean, whatever, I dealt with it, it's fine, but... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it swings and roundabouts. I did do, if I'm honest, I, on, for Colombo, I did do a week in a, in a studio um, in London, in a really nice one. Yeah. And I, I just did vocals all week. Um, and like the, the vocals in that studio had a totally different feeling to the ones I did at home. So it was really useful for some things. Like I'd use those, th- those ones for like the choruses on some stuff where it was just yeah. like, it needed to be really accurate and like a bit more like brash and performative. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ones at home were like much more like uh, cozy sounding. Do you feel more comfortable in the studio or live? Um, it's a different thing for me. Um, my, my live performances are very different to my, my studio yeah. stuff. Um, in a live, it's much more of a show and I'm like, I'm being the rock star and I'm playing the guitar solos and you know, I, on, in, in the studio, it's much more about the song, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, it's something that I'm still kind of trying to figure out, you know, I, I very much view them as two separate things, the live yeah. music and the streaming thing. And then the performance and with a, with a live band thing, it's like, it's not saying it's almost like, like two different artists. 
What do you feel like is the most honest representation of you as an artist as a whole? The, the studio. Oh, you think studio? Yeah. But no, but I mean, you know, so having saying that, like I get to shred my dick off on, on stage and like, I love doing that. Um, and you know, I don't really get the opportunity to do that. Like double leg solos, like, sure. like standing on the drum riser and like squealing, at, like the top of the guitar. Like I, yeah, I live those moments and, um, and I really get to express myself as a guitar player, um, live, which I don't really get to do in the same way, uh, on the, on the records. Sure. How do you feel about the state of streaming? state of the state of the industry in in the stream we don't i'm just opening a can of worms opening a can of worms here but now yeah. that the opinions are out let's let's go i i am firmly uh in the camp of um streaming is is has saved the music industry not mm -hmm. destroyed it yeah um i think that you have a situation where a far higher number of uh, musicians are able to make a living from their music yeah um and it has um it has bypassed the necessity of uh having a record deal and going to the radio and 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 being part of the machine which i really which i really respect you know when i when i first started as an artist i signed a record deal mm -hmm. with a major label in, in los angeles and you know in, in that case it was here's a big check we're going to spend $350,000 on your album. Then we're going to go to radio. Then we're going to make a really expensive video and we're going to take 80% of your income and you're never going to recoup your record deal and you're not going to make any money for the rest of your life. Like unless, unless you're Adele, mm -hmm. in which case you can buy an Island. Like that was the kind of situation before. Now, if you're making good music, it will find a home to, to whatever it's, whatever it deserves. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. um, I'm, you know, I'm not playing stadiums and I have five, five million monthly listeners. I'm, I'm so lucky to have that, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I make a living from it and, and I think it's an amazing thing. It's interesting people from different generations, the way that they grew up, the way they talk about it. Cause I think for you and I, we didn't grow up knowing any different, you know? And I hear talking to people 10, 20, 40 years older, like, oh man, you should have seen my special payments fund every August. We'd get that check from all our session work or, oh man, my union pension from session work or vinyl sales, cassette sales, CD sales. It's like, I don't know. I didn't grow up with that. I don't know what to compare it to. Yeah. I'm hearing what they're saying. I'm like, oh man, the way, when you put it that way, I feel like I'm missing out. But right now I'm pretty stoked to be making a living. Yeah. And and having everything that I do based off of my music career, I, I think I do. I do think you got to be you got to be like you got to be smart about it. I mean, I've I'm an independent artist, so on a, on the on the basic level, like I don't give away too much equity. I kind of see the whole thing as as a as a as a as any other business, which is you need to give away as little equity as you possibly can. If you go into mm -hmm. the Shark Tank and say. You know, I've in, I've invented the Cliff Bar, and I think everyone's going to eat this. But I need to, I need a hundred thousand dollars in order to further my my Cliff Bar business. And they would be like, okay, we'll give you the hundred grand, but we're going to take twenty percent of your equity. And they'd be like, mm, I'm going to need to talk to my business partner because I came in here expecting to give away five. Mm -hmm. Like at the moment, I give away twenty five percent of my of my equity to uh, AWOL, which is my service provider. 
my label service provider. If you sign to a major label, you're giving it, you're giving away 80% of your equity. So you're already fucking yourself. If you then are in a band with five people, you're then splitting that 20% that you have left five ways. And then of your fifth of the 20%, you then give 40% of it to the tax man. And, and then people are like, where's my money? It's like, well, I know where it's gone. You gave it all to other people, basically. And that, that's because there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a misfit between the, the old system of being part of a major label and DSP yeah. uh, system. So I think, I think really be like going through like a modern system like AWOL is probably the best way to do it uh, with DSPs. Yeah. Cause I think, I think people, I think people, the problem, the problem comes, I think people overestimate the amount of money that is generally coming into the system. Sure. You know, it's like, I've had a million streams on my, on my song that I co-wrote with this artist who signed to universal. Where's my check? It's like, there isn't one because there is no money and yeah. what little money there is. You have, you have given away to other people. Yeah. And it is amazing. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it now. I mean, I use DistroKid for distribution on the DSPs and they take 0%. Yeah. You know, I pay like a yearly fee, which what? is, I pay like a hundred dollars, maybe $50 a year. And they take 0% dude. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, and okay. So and I that's have a just, That's just like, um, admin basically. Then they're, they're not like, they don't do any funding or anything like that. No, I mean, they're not really like pushing my music for sync or that sort of thing. But right now it's like, for, for me, the only things that I'm giving up equity in is I have my manage, my managers take a percentage of gross and my agents take a percentage of live income, of yeah. course. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm with you in the, in the indie realm where you can, I, I mean, I'm, I'm eternally curious. I am so curious. My last four records, I tried to find a label. Just like, what, what, what could you offer? Like, what, what do you think you would do here? Like, I, what know, do you I know exactly what they can offer because they've been offered to me. Grammys, basically. <laughs> it's like, it's like old school validation is the only thing that they have to offer at this point in time. Um, they seem like really great marketing companies, though. I mean, as far as the labels, they, they've got all the arms for it. If they yeah. do it right, they yeah. might not do it in your exact voice. Are they, are they though, like, I mean, okay, last year, my, one of my songs went viral on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was at one point the 14th, 14th most played piece of music on TikTok worldwide for, like, okay. for a brief period of time. And when it was happening, like my, my label and my management were all like, it's happening, it's happening. Like, let's, mm -hmm. let's push this to radio. Let's make a video. Let's capitalize on the moment. And I was like, this is the moment. Like all of this other stuff now serves to channel to virility. Like even going on the radio is like anyone would trade a, like anyone would trade a, a radio, radio song being playlisted on a radio station for being the most played music on TikTok, like that is unbeatable yeah. promo. And what's hilarious about it to me is that like virility is essentially uncontrollable. It's essentially anarchic and chaotic. So I don't care if you're the best marketing guy on the fucking planet. There's no way that you can market something on TikTok because it's just what people want. That's yeah, it. Yeah. You can just be like a girl in the back of our mom's car pulling this face and suddenly you're the most famous person on the planet. You can't market that. So yeah. I don't know. I think, I think what's beautiful about it is, is like that all just comes down to like, what, what's a good song. Like even like Tom O'Dell, my friend, Tom O'Dell, who's an amazing uh, musician and artist. He had a pretty big hit 
um, a few years back with uh, another love. And it was on the radio and like, you know, he did really well out of it and blah, 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 sold a bunch of records. And now in the, in the modern day, he's had another viral moment with that song, Another Love. And like mm-hmm. the slowed down version and the sped up version, and it's now become like a huge viral hit again. It's like that's not a, that's not a coincidence. It's just because it's really good. And yeah. I don't care if you're on a major label and they're pumping millions of dollars into something. You can't make people like what that isn't good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just sometimes wonder for certain artists. I mean, there's so much good music out there. Are the labels just really good at taking the spotlight and turning it over to this person? I've yeah. seen them do it with several artists. I've, there's several artists I've looked at. I'm like, wow, this label is really pushing this person for the last 10 years. Why? Yeah. Like it's almost happening, almost happening. And then it almost happens. There's certain things. And then there's certain ones where they don't shine the light on that person. And I get curious about that. But I, it's it's very interesting to get opinions from people who have been in the label system. Mm. I have a friend right now who's recently got in and is on his way out just completely unsatisfied and some people that certain artists just they need that sort of thing they can't yeah be indie you know so it's like oh okay cool like that it services them very well but yeah um do you did you do anything in particular to did you was there any catalyst that you did to make the tiktok thing happen or was it just like no i just made a dope song dude I, I, i put out my second album and then nearly two years later one of the songs went viral that just seems a, to be how it goes from yeah. all of my friends' stories that have done that. It's so yeah. bizarre. It's so bizarre. But I mean, going back to the major label thing, when I was signed to, uh, when I was signed to, it was Virgin Records. Okay. And uh, and I every every major label that I went to were like, we love your voice and we love your songs. We should make you like Jack White. We love your voice and you love your songs. You should be like Ed Sheeran. We love your voice and you love your songs. You should be like uh, David Gray. Like mm. everyone had a pre-existing blueprint of where they wanted to funnel me. Got it. And Virgin Records were great because they were like, we love your voice, you love your songs, here's a check, go make an album. So I did this album. It was with Ethan Johns. Um, we did it all to tape, all played live. I had Pino Palladino on the bass. I had Jason Rebello on keys. I had, yeah. uh, 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 I can't remember, amazing drummer whose name escapes me right now. Anyway, it was like high level shit like musicianship wise and we did all this live music and i brought it proudly brought this album back to them I was like look what i've done it's got pina paladino on it and look it's really cool and really really good um and they were like it's unreleasable is what they told me they said <laughs> we will not be releasing this on virgin records why did you sign to us you should have signed to blue note um mm. so i i got dropped very quickly and you know the, it, for them it was like really a matter of of mathematics you know some guy just looks at a spreadsheet and he's like who's bruno major uh in the in the in the red column it says three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and in the green column it says zero dollars so i guess let's just can him and and i was canned and you know i lost the album but for, i mean i then went back to london and and, and had with with five thousand dollars which i borrowed from my manager I I bought a laptop and an SM7B and I recorded an album in my bedroom and then the lead single went gold in America and mm. it just it just shows you how little they they really they really know and like who's to know if they'd have 
like pumped millions into the album maybe it would have done well maybe it wouldn't have done well i don't think it would have done because i don't think it was that good but i just think it has more to do with the quality of music the only reason my my, my first album did well is because it was because it was good and even though it cost me five thousand pounds and i made it in my bedroom and it didn't have piano palladino on it like it, it it had something special about it because of because of its situation i think yeah You've done a bunch of co-writing and working with other artists as well. What do you think you look for when you're collaborating or writing with somebody? And what do you think you bring to the table that's unique for other artists when you when you when you're asked to go into somebody else's thing? Yeah. Um, I'll be honest, I don't think that's my greatest talent. I I done I did song I did songwriting for for a while. Um but I I never really found my you know, my voice with it. Um I've learned a great deal from from collaborating with people. Like I've done sessions with people like S. G. Lewis and 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 Pharaoh, who are like electronic artists. M. J. Cole. I learned lots about production from them. Um, and I've I've written for pop artists. I've I've written with Sam Smith and done like that kind of like pop writing thing. Um, I, I think for, for me, what uh, I think what I bring to the table. Um, it's probably like a harmonic knowledge and like an ability with words. I'm, I feel like my sort of my lyrics are the things that that um, make me stand out as a writer. But, mm-hmm. but even then, I like I don't really, I can't really do it on cue. You know, like when you turn up when you have a session on Thursday the twenty seventh of October with somebody and you turn up and do it. It's like <laughs> I really I really struggle to just like pull a pull a button, push a button, and like write a song. For me, it's like. I'll just be going about my life and then it will just happen um, and I'll get an idea for a song and I just have to chase it. Um, and that's just the way it works. And I, mm-hmm. I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. Well, on this last record, you are very, you you expose yourself a lot. You're very transparent. You, it, it feels very vulnerable in your writing, just life experiences and things that you seem to have gone through. I don't know what it was, but listening through this last record, Seems like there was a lot of life experience that you drew from for the writing. Is it all, is the record as a whole tied together? Is there one main theme for you? I don't think there's a main theme. Um, I mean, it, it, it's definitely a diary of my my life. I mean, Columbo came from really that like explosion of life post, um, post-COVID. Um, I felt like, I don't know how you felt as an artist, but although I was very fortunate as a person, I was with my family and I was healthy and we had food and safety and all that kind of stuff. As an artist, it was very stifling. And mm-hmm. so I didn't really do anything for that whole period. And as soon as it had ended, I went over to LA and just like lived life twice as fast as I, as I, and like kind of tried to catch up almost. And Columbo really feels like it came out of that moment in time. And it's kind of like a a, a rebirth to me. Um, so although, you know, it talks about death, it talks about mental health, it talks about love, it talks about life. Um, it's the overarching theme I would say is, is that period of time. Do you find it hard to keep a grasp of your mental health as an artist in the modern era? Yes. What is the hardest part and how do you deal with it? The hardest part for me, the hardest part for me is like, it's really like self-identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think to perpetuate the idea of Bruno Major as a commercial entity mm-hmm. um, is to 
almost perpetuate an idea of yourself and 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 the 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 version of Bruno Major that I that I perpetuate in my music does exist, but it's not the full picture. And there are parts of myself that I don't perpetuate because they they would be in some way unpalatable. I think, you know, like, and then you, then the people that you meet only know this version of yourself, and they they know the frozen version in time that made easily, or the or the frozen version in time that made nothing. Um, and then you know, there's there's like a constant like intensive validation when you're on tour. Um, there's the way that you know as you become more successful, the way that people treat you changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, it's a cre- it's, it's an unnatural, it's an unnatural thing to do, especially being on tour. It's to, to feel that energy. If you want to like be in the moment and experience the moment truly, and you have to like somehow deal with the energy of like three and a half, four thousand people having a conversation with you at the same time. That's not a normal experience. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes it's like, where the fuck do I put this energy? Like, where does it go? <laughs> Cause it's going somewhere. And I'm taking yeah. it in, and where that, where that, where is it going? So, yeah, there's lots to deal with, um, and I think that's why I, I don't really know a single mu- successful musician who's not a bit fucked in the head, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, sometimes success is hard to deal with. Like, what do you? A lot of, I mean, some people maybe. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can go around it, but I often find myself just not knowing or like not feeling deserving, or it's like, oh, there's so many better guitar players out there. Like, wow. And then, you know, but of course you work hard and you know that if you have something unique to bring to the table, of course, you know, you work hard enough and, you know, grind at it. But it's sometimes it it is really weird when it's a bunch of people telling you you're great and you sometimes don't feel that way or a bunch of people telling you how awesome you are, how, you know, and then you're just like, I don't know, like, didn't you hear me mess up? Like, I played an F over that C major seven. Are you serious? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, did you not hear the second verse? <laughs> I, I love F over C major seven. <laughs> um, I mean, dude, I, I mean, I have to say, I think, I mean, I think your imposter syndrome here is misplaced. I think, I think you're awesome and you have a very clear voice as a guitar player. Um, I, I don't relate to, to imposter syndrome. I, I think I have the opposite, which is like, I'm, I'm arrogant. And for a long time, I felt like I felt like I wasn't being appreciated. Sure. And I, I always felt like I had, I felt, always felt like I had something to say. Um, and it was like, I couldn't figure out, I couldn't figure out how to say it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a gnarly old world, mate. It's a gnarly old world. I think, I think you've just got to keep putting one foot in front of each other yeah, um, and appreciate like, it's just so wonderful that we get to do this, isn't it? Totally. Got to keep telling yourself that. Like, look at you, man. You're in your, you're in your studio, (laughs) you're doing your podcast. You're about to go on tour as your solo artist and you're doing residency with two fucking awesome ass bands. Like I'm on tour in America playing my songs to people every night who love them. It's like, I am so, I am so grateful and I take the uh, mental health damage as some sort of like payment for how awesome it is. To be honest. Sure. Yeah. Do you feel like your your arrogance thing is has anything to do with a, a sibling who's a musician? Um, well, he's arrogant as well. <laughs> 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 um, you know that that was definitely a driving force for me. I would say. Um, you know, like sibling rivalry is is certainly something that. Um, 
you know, my brother's like a pretty exceptional human being. Um, and he was very successful at a very early age. Yeah. Um, he hit London grammar, his band, you know, mm-hmm. when he, from the time he was 23, they were having like, you know, number one albums and touring around the world. And it was definitely something where I saw that and I was like, okay, the bar's been lifted. Like, I know what I have to do now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, who knows if that, if he hadn't have, have achieved what he had achieved, maybe I wouldn't have been driven in quite the same way. It's hard to tell. Sure. Yeah. Well, when we wrap it up here, what uh, what are you most excited about coming up? You got the new album out. You're on tour now. What else are you stoked about? What's what's coming next? Um, it's hard to see past this tour, Corey. If I'm honest, um, we're yeah. currently halfway through uh, the US leg, and also by extension, halfway through uh, we're doing Asia, U- US, Europe, Australia. Um, there are also other things in the diary which I haven't announced yet. Um, so I'm pretty much, you know going back to the the album thing it's like when you're making your albums you've got to be vulnerable you've got to be sensitive you've got to be openly open emotionally and when you're on tour you're just a fucking soldier aren't you just get up yeah get the breakfast do the workout play the gig get on the bus repeat so i'm just i'm just here and i'm just getting it done and i'm absolutely loving it to be honest and if you would like to come down to a show i would be honored to to have you there and uh, i would also very much like to see one of your shows if, if you uh if you could make that happen i would love that that'd be amazing Yes. Let's take a look at each other's calendars and we'll see if something lines up. That'd be awesome. That'd be great. Awesome, man. Awesome. And dude, thank you, both of you. Thank you so much for having me on your your wonderful podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Yeah, man. Likewise. Glad glad we gave you an opportunity to share a couple of your opinions here. (laughs) Thanks, bro. All right. Well, have a great gig tonight and I'll hopefully see you sometime soon. All right, Corey. Nice one, mate. Yeah, man. Thanks. Peace. All right. Bye, bye, bye. There you have it. What a nice guy. What a nice little hang. Man, I I feel it with him being on tour, you know? Going through the grind, going through the daily thing. I respect the hustle. I respect it big time. Bruno's doing great things out there. Like I said earlier, if you're not hip to his music, go check it out. Go check it out. There's some really good live videos of of some guitar solos, because I know many of you are guitar players. Go, Go scope the live videos. If you're into the guitar playing, scope the live videos. If you want to get the production songwriting thing, listen to the albums. That's all I got to say. So thanks for hanging with us. We hope to see you next time. Thanks for uh, just, you know, making it this far in the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been fun to do this podcast. And if this is your first time here, welcome. I hope to see you again. Peace.